millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And welcome to The Plays The Thing. This is Tim McIntosh, and this is your podcast for all things Shakespeare. Now, ordinarily on this show, we will take one of Shakespeare's plays, and we will discuss it act by act, diving pretty deep into wordplay, character development, plot, etc. Um, I'm doing something topical this week. And next week, the talk that you're about to hear was given at the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival in September of 2023, and it's on Shakespeare's view of leadership. Uh, I was invited by Alchemy Theater in Huntington, West Virginia, to give this talk and the next one that will show up in the feed. I give my reasons for why to talk about why I wanted to talk about Shakespeare's view of leadership. I find this topic really, really compelling. I hope you do too. Thanks to Nora Ankrum, who's the executive director of Alchemy Theater. You can hear Nora on two of our previous shows, Taming of the Shrew and All's Well That Ends Well. We also want to thank Mike Murdoch, artistic director of Alchemy Theater. And if you are in Huntington, West Virginia, please make sure you go catch a show at this wonderful theater. And now, Shakespeare on Leadership. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. This uh, is a talk about great leadership according to Shakespeare. Uh, I want to first like, do the obligatory compliments on how beautiful West Virginia is. It's a really beautiful state. I've driven through a few times, but I've not been this far west. And it's beautiful. I'm glad that I'm here. Um, I love William Shakespeare. I have taught his play plays. I've acted in his plays. And by the end of this year, I will have podcast through all 37 of his plays. So this is the beginning of what I think might become a book. I want to do a book on how Shakespeare thinks about 
leadership, and so you guys will be the first to hear it. Um, why the subject of Shakespeare and leadership? There are three reasons for it. One is because culturally, we're kind of obsessed with leadership. Like, if you look at the number of books on Amazon available about leadership, it surpasses 60,000 books on leadership. You might want to ask, like, so why are you going to like go into a glutted market with a book about Shakespeare? We can talk about that later. All these books sound kind of similar. They're like tips and techniques and strategies that can help you through a few simple tools to make you the incredible leader that you already are. So here is my attempt to gather every leadership book into one title. It's really long, so hang on. Inspiring, passionate, authentic, redemptive, humble, courageous, inclusive leadership using 12 simple tools for becoming the leader you are, like Winston Churchill, Brene Brown, Tom Brady, and Jesus. <laughs> I think that would sell very, very well. Uh, it's not just the book industry, but it's also our schools. Everyone promises to raise a generation of future leaders. Here are two examples. Main Street School, I made that name up, seeks to provide an excellent educational experience in order to produce the next generation of well-rounded servant leaders, of course. Here's one more. Our school trains up critical thinkers, clear communicators, and compassionate leaders through the pursuit of academic excellence. There it is, compassionate leaders. But despite all of the conversation and obsession about leadership, I don't know that we're actually doing a great job. I don't know that we're actually generating a ton of great leaders. We have a lot of politicians. We're not really making a lot of statesmen or stateswomen. We are asking our students to take lots of tests, but I don't know that we're generating wiser students in any way. We're encouraging people to make money, but I don't know that we have a whole lot of community-minded business people, lots of preachers, but not as many gentle, strong pastors. So, despite our cultural obsession with leadership, I don't know that we're doing a great job. So that's the one reason I wanted to talk about this subject. The second reason is I work with presidents and CEOs all day long, directly, and I've kind of, I've, I've I can usually tell within about a two-hour conversation how well the organization is doing just based on the two-hour conversation with this leader. And unfortunately, it, the answer is the organizations are not always doing great, and you can kind of see why when you meet the leaders. I mean, really a lot of nice people, but not necessarily a ton of great leaders. And the third reason I wanted to talk about, uh, of course, leadership in Shakespeare is because Shakespeare is obsessed himself with leadership. Virtually every play that he writes, I can think of one exception, is about, is centrally focused on a king. One is focused on a king and queen, so I don't mean to leave queens out of it. He just doesn't write that much about queens. Here's a little quiz. Um, can you think of the one queen in Shakespeare, who is the ruler of a people? This is a little bit of a deep cut. One queen that rules her people. There are plenty of queens in Shakespeare, but this is, as far as I can remember, the only one who rules her people. 
Cleopatra. That's the only one that I could think of. Um, so this workshop is an attempt to gain some wisdom from William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, the master psychologist. I love William Shakespeare, not just because the beauty of his words, but I think that his vision of the human psyche, of what, what makes us tick, is beyond compare. So we're going to ask William Shakespeare for a few lessons And I'm going to give you four, and here's the first one. The first lesson from Shakespeare about being a leader is that it sucks to be a leader. Put another way, heavy is the head that wears the crown. You guys know that saying. It's actually a misquote. The original is uneasy is the head that that wears the crown. Can anybody for bonus points Tell me the name of the play. This is also a deep cut. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown is from what play? You got one right. I'm expecting, like, (laughs) you're going to get all of these right. No, that's a great guess. It's a great guess. Uh, It's Henry IV, not part one. Part two, Henry the Fourth. It's like a really deep cut. You're like, man, Tim. Um, It is not fun to be a leader, according to Shakespeare. If you are a king or an emperor in any of the following plays, Macbeth, King Lear, Hamlet, Richard II, Richard III, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, King John, Julius Caesar, Henry the Sixth, Antony and Cleopatra, or Cymbeline, guess what? You're dead by the end of the play. And in some of those plays, like Macbeth, two kings die. If you do happen to be a king and you survive the play, odds are you learned a brutal lesson, which Mike is going to like learn when he starts performing Winter's Tale. Leontes, king in the Winter's Tale, lo- survives the play miraculously enough, but loses in the process his son, his wife, and his daughter until the end. So Shakespeare's first warning to us, his first lesson to us, ask yourself, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to be at the top? You better be sure because the stakes are high, the air is thin, and the the fall is very far. So if you still want to be a leader, here is a second piece of advice from William Shakespeare. Great leaders often fail not because they lack the right strategy or the right planning or the right weapons, but because they lack character. It's almost always because they lack character. And I'm going to be a little bit more specific. Um, What begins the king's downfall is almost always an emotional response that dominates them. It's an emotional response that takes over. So think about King Lear. We're going to talk about King Lear now. Um, King Lear, the play opens. It's one of the best things that's ever been written by a human being. Lear steps to the stage, and he's surrounded by his court. He has three daughters, and he is going to divide the kingdom between his three daughters. One of them he loves the most. Cordelia. He loves Cordelia the most. Goneril and Reagan, sure, fine. 
adequate daughters. And I'm gonna be fair. I'm gonna split it between all three of them, okay? So first to Gonorrhea and then to Reagan and then to uh, Cordelia. He asks all three of them, hey, I would like for you to say why I should give you one third of the kingdom. So Reagan and Gonorrhea go first and they just lay it on so thick. Oh my goodness, you are the best dad of all time. He wasn't. You are just the most just ruler. He wasn't. You are the apple of our eye and, you know, everything in our hearts. No, he's not. And he loves it. Lear hears this and he loves it. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, daughters. Oh, yes. It's so great. Here is your third of the land. Here is your third of the land. And then it comes to Cordelia. And if you remember the play, Cordelia just says, basically, I love you according to the bond that we have, father and daughter, but nothing more than that. I love you appropriately. And there's like, wait, what? That's not gonna work. That's not, you need to kind of lay it on. He has this line, um, oh yeah, he says, do you have nothing more to say? She says, nothing. Nothing will come of nothing, daughter. Speak yet again. And she won't speak again. She just says, I've said my piece. But she truly loves him and has been the most wonderful daughter. And so here comes this tidal wave of emotion from Lear. It takes over. He throws Cordelia out of the empire. She, he kind of forces her to break the engagement that she had with one of the princes of Burgundy or France. I can't remember. And the entire rest of the play is watching the kingdom collapse because Lear doesn't understand that he is emotionally completely disappointed, upset, sad that his number one daughter didn't just go over the top in adoring him. She just gave him what was due and what was just. So there's this kind of sense um, that character is first formed by our emotional response to crises or things that we do not expect. And in the great kings of Shakespeare that fall, that emotion tends to overpower and dominate them and basically destroy everyone around them and it destroys, it ends up destroying their kingdom. So if emotion is kind of like the first fruits of character and character is destiny, then Shakespeare certainly believes that the thing that we need to learn about leadership is that character is destiny. Character is destiny is a quote that comes from a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, a long, long time ago. So let's think about his great kings for a second, and if we can, let's try to name the flaws in each of these kings. I know I'm doing a lot of quizzes, but yeah, I think we can do it. So Macbeth, do we want to make a guess about what Macbeth's great flaw is? He says it in his second major monologue. Ambition. Ambition. He basically, well done, he stands in front of the stage and he's like, you know what I should do? I think I should probably kill the king. No, you know what? Let's walk through it. And he walks through it and he's like, man, the king is a really great king. Duncan's a great king. Ah, you know, I shouldn't kill him for that reason. If I do, I'll go to hell. I shouldn't, I don't want that. Um, these are the other reasons he kind of walks through it syllogistically. And then at the end, he says, 
Why do I want to do this? Vaulting ambition. It's the only reason I want to do it. And then Lady Macbeth comes out and everything changes. He, like, he really is like rock solid. I'm not going to do this. And Lady Macbeth is like, I thought you were a man. I am a man. Then go kill the king. Okay. So that's what happens. So Macbeth, vaulting ambition. Lear. We just heard a little bit about Lear. What is Lear's tragic flaw? His great flaw of character. Yeah, I have pride, ego. His daughter didn't say what he wanted him to say to her, what he wanted her to say to him. Uh, Othello. Envy, jealousy. The the green-eyed monster is what Iago calls it. Uh, How about Leontes from The Winter's Tale? Again, this is kind of a deep cut. You will go see the play on Marshall's University beginning in three weeks. Yeah, yeah. Goes up in November. Okay, in November. Start so, um, I mean, jealousy as well. Yeah, jealousy. Um, okay, how about this one? Now, I'm going to say the character, and if you say, I don't know that he's actually like the heroic main character of the play, and you would have a point. So, with that out of the way, Julius Caesar. What's Julius Caesar's tragic flaw, according to Brutus and Cassius? His ambition. So we've got, in these kings, two are overly ambitious, two are jealousy. These are like the problems that they have. One of, one of them is pride. Shakespeare has his great kings, kings of characters, and he also isn't afraid to kill them off. That's kind of the bad news. So Hamlet's father, although he dies offstage, was by all counts a really great guy. Hamlet says, so excellent a king, so loving to my mother that he might not be team the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. He was such a caring person to my mother that if the wind blew too hard against her cheek, he would be team the winds. Now, what does the word be team mean and how did William Shakespeare come up with that word That's tomorrow afternoon at one o'clock. I'm giving a talk on how to become a word coining genius. Um, The only one, as far as I know, of the really great kings in all of Shakespeare's plays that survives with character intact is Henry V. Henry V is remembered as one of the great warrior kings of medieval England, widely praised for his piety, bravery and military genius. Even the French gave it up. They were like, yeah, he's great. We hate him, but he was great. Henry V knew how to motivate his troops. That was one of his great abilities. And he gave what is perhaps the greatest wartime speech in history. I'm going to do just a little bit of it. He is out in front of his troops. It's St. Crispian's Day. They are about to attack the French They are tremendously outnumbered. They should just get mowed down. And he begins his speech and he's like, I don't want anybody here. I don't want any more soldiers because if there are more soldiers, that's less glory for me and that's less glory for you. And he closes the speech. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He shall on this day 
and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on St. Crispin's day. By the way, Crispian, Crispian, Crispin. That's what the text says. Crispian, Crispian, Crispin. If you want to know why he cut that little word, that little letter out, the last mention, tomorrow at 1 p.m. Yeah, you become a word-coining genius. I will say a little bit more about Henry V at the end. Okay, so um, Shakespeare's first lesson about leadership is that it's not fun to be at the top. I think his second lesson is the way to learn is often, the way to learn leadership is often not to look at the person who's at the top of the pyramid of power, but to look at secondary characters. Because most often in Shakespeare's plays, the really good ones are secondary servants to the king who find themselves in a bind. The king has done something horrible and they're torn between loyalty to that king and kind of doing what's right. So I'm gonna use two examples. One of them is Kent, who I already mentioned. He is like the servant to um, Lear. And the second one is also a slightly less known character, but she's absolutely wonderful. Paulina, who is servant to Leontes' wife. Paulina, servant to and kind of nursemaid to uh, Hermione, who is the wife of Leontes. Leontes is the one crazy, jealous rage. We'll talk about that in a second. I'm just gonna pause. I was in New York. This is how much of a Shakespeare nerd I am. I was at the Strand, the bookstore, and they had bumper stickers. This is like a few years ago, and it was like um, presidential bumper stickers, like, you know, vote for this president for in 2016 or whatever it was. And it said, Hermione 2020 or something like that. And I was like, oh, Hermione from The Winter's Tale. And I, <laughs> yeah. If you want to learn from Shakespeare, look to secondary characters who are often not at the top of the pyramid of power. What can we learn from these secondary characters? First, they are sometimes the only person in the play after the king has gone bonkers who is willing to state reality. Like actually say the way that things are. Kent from King Lear. Here's my example. Lear goes crazy against Cordelia. Um, and, and after he goes crazy against Cordelia, Kent steps forward and like states reality in front of everybody. And it's really clear that he's like perhaps going to get killed because of this. And Lear knows it and Kent knows it and everybody in the court knows it. So I've asked a volunteer to just Listen to these lines from, from Kent after Lear loses his mind. Royal Lear, whom I have ever honored as my king, loved as my father, as my master followed, as my great patron thought on in my prayers, be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad. Reverse thy doom, and in thy best consideration, check this hideous rashness. Answer my life, my judgment. 
Thy youngest daughter does not love thee least. This is like the truth. Everybody knows it. Ken is the only one who says it. Because everybody else is mortified. They're going to die if they say something. Second lesson is, from these secondary characters, not only do they speak the truth, but they also know the consequences before they speak the truth. And the consequences are dire. The consequences for for Kent are that he gets banished. So listen to Kent right after, listen to Lear, right after Kent speaks the truth. This is Lear speaking to Kent. Hear me, recreant. Five days we do allot thee for provision to shield thee from the diseases of the world. And on the sixth day, to turn thy hated back upon our kingdom. If on the 10th day following, thy banished trunk be found in our dominions, that moment is thy death. So Kent flees. Now, Kent is so clever that he puts on a disguise, comes back, tricks Lear into believing like, oh, he's this really cool soldier who just wanted to join his tribe. And he ends up kind of covertly coaching Lear into not being even stupider than he already is. So good on Kent. Paulina, nursemaid to Hermione. Hermione is the wife of Leontes. Okay, so here's the background before we meet Leontes and Paulina. Um, Leontes is having his buddy, another king, visit. That king's name is Polixenes, Polixenes, king of Bohemia. Leontes, gonna be Mike, king of Sicilia. Everything's great. Oh, everybody's having such a good time. They're having a party. The beginning of act one, scene one. Uh, Polixenes' first words are, Nine changes of the watery star hath been the shepherd's note since we have left our throne without a burden. Now that right there is a little key to about what's going to happen. Nine changes of the watery star. Does anyone want to translate from Shakespeare? What does that mean, nine changes of the watery star? What do you think the watery star is? It's the moon. So what would nine changes of the moon be? be nine months, what is the, what's another timeline for, not, what happens in nine months? That's when a baby arrives. So Polixenes is there. He's like, man, I've been gone for nine months. And then you see Hermione, very, very, very pregnant, about to give birth. And your subconscious is like, wait a second. Is it, could, is Polixenes? So that's what happens to Leontes. Leontes is like, You've been hanging out for nine months. My wife got pregnant nine months ago. You guys are having an affair. And there's no evidence for it at all. There's none. There's no evidence. But that sets Leontes bonkers. He goes insane. He accuses Hermione. He accuses Polixenes. Polixenes runs for his life back to his kingdom. He puts Hermione on trial. She stands in front of the jury and she's like, it doesn't matter what I say, but let me go ahead and say it anyway. You're crazy. I'm not. You should stop this immediately. And I'm having your baby. And he's like, no, you're not having my baby. You're having Polixenes' baby. So that's where we are. Hermione steps off stage. Leontes is again totally raging with jealousy. Hermione has the baby 
and then her nursemaid comes on with the newborn baby to present it to the father, Leontes, for the first time in his life. He's never seen his baby. I have a five-month-old. I remember the first time I saw my daughter, and I was like, I couldn't wait to put my arms around her and hold her. So we think about like how unnatural it must feel for Leontes to like call this baby a bastard. He's going to call the baby a bastard. So um, let's hear Paulina and Leontes. Oh, the first line, I'm sorry. The first line, fear you his tyrannous passion, is toward a guard who attempts to stop Paulina from approaching Leontes with a baby. Fear you his tyrannous passion more, alas, than the queen's life? I say, I come from your good queen. Good queen. Good queen, my lord, good queen. I say good queen. Force her hence. Let him that makes but trifles of his eyes first hand me. <laughs> On mine own accord, I am off. But first I'll do my errand. The good queen, for she is good, hath brought forth a daughter. Here it is. Commends it to your blessing. Out. A mankind witch. Hence with her out of door. A most intelligenting bawd. Not so. In so entitling me, and no less honest, then you are mad. Which is enough, I'll warrant, as this world goes, to pass for honest. Traitors! Will you not push her out? Take up the bastard. Take it up, I say. Give it to thy crone. Forever unvenerable be thy hands, if thou takest up the princess by that force of baseness which thou hast put upon it. Really good. So, again... This is the only person in the whole court that's willing to say what the truth is. This is your daughter. It's not a bastard child. And your queen is a good queen. She's a good queen. She's a good queen. Like it says it over and over. Just like I want to make sure you get the point. Everybody knows she's a good queen. You're the only one that doesn't know she's a good queen. And the danger for Paulina is the same danger as Kent. It could go. It could end up with her beheading. It could end up with her being exiled Fortunately, neither of those happened to Paulina. Kent is banished, but Paulina lives on and remains in court, and eventually both are restored. Paulina much more than Kent, but that's another conversation. So again, for Shakespeare, excuse me, character is destiny, and character is made through understanding these like emotional drives that are impacting the king kings and making them go insane. These kings don't know themselves well at all. There's even a line in Lear, uh, Reagan says to Goneril, he has ever but slenderly known himself. He's ever but slenderly known himself. It's clear that Lear, when he loses his mind and gets taken over by this prideful passion, He's never known himself that well. So it's not, yeah, we shouldn't be that surprised. Third lesson, and this is going to be the final lesson, is Shakespeare would advise us to choose your father wisely. Choose your father wisely. And I'm going to go back to Henry V. I could say choose your mother wisely, and it would be true, but again, the like lack of queens aside from Cleopatra and nobody wants Cleopatra for mom 
is why I'm going to say choose your father wisely. In the play Henry IV, Part One, Prince Hal, who will be Henry V, the greatest king in medieval England, Prince Hal's father, Henry IV, is on the throne, and his kingdom is beset by all sorts of problems. The biggest problem is probably Hotspur, this kind of marauding general who's going to come into the kingdom. Prince Hal's father, Henry IV, really wants Prince Hal to kind of get it together. But Prince Hal is, he's probably in his early 20s, maybe he's even a teenager. He's a very young man. And what is Prince Hal doing? He's hanging out in the saloon with his other dad. I call him his other dad because I think the play is very deliberately like Prince Hal faces a choice. Go to your father, Henry IV, or keep hanging out with this saloon dad. Who's the saloon dad? Maybe one of the most famous characters in Shakespeare. Falstaff. Great, great, great character. The rumor is that Queen Elizabeth loved Falstaff so much that she requested Shakespeare personally to write a play about Falstaff falling in love, and he did it. Do you know what that play is? Merry Wives of Windsor. You guys are great. You're great. So Henry IV desperately wants his son, Prince Hal, to show up and to contribute toward ruling the kingdom. But Prince Hal is hanging out with his other other dad. And Falstaff is so much fun. He's so clever. He's so full of himself. He's a chronic liar. And even even when he lies, you're like, oh, Falstaff, you're just too much fun. But the play gets more and more serious. It's kind of a comedy when they're in the saloon together, but as things get more and more serious in the kingdom, it becomes less of a comedy and a real question of, okay, Hal, what are you gonna do here? And eventually, to ruin the story for you, Hal has to make a choice between the two dads. I'm not arguing that Henry IV is like super dad of the year. He's got his own issues. But it's clear that Shakespeare knows that it's right for Hal to join his place on the throne. And that means taking on his true dad as his father. And it means turning his back on Falstaff. And it's a heartbreaking scene when Prince Hal, eventually Henry IV, does turn his back on Falstaff. And it feels a little bit unfair maybe to Falstaff but that's for you to decide. I will conclude by saying what I have already said. Here is Shakespeare advice on leadership. Being on top sucks. And I I have experienced this, like if you've been in leadership, it's not always fun. It's not always fun. If somebody's got a complaint, it's gonna usually come to you and you're usually gonna be the problem even if you're not the problem. This is kind of like the cost of doing leadership. Sometimes the best leader, advice piece number two, is not at the top but is a secondary character, Kent and Paulina. Character is destiny and emotions and understanding the emotions are the first step toward understanding and improving character. And then the fourth step is choose your father wisely. That is all I have, um, except for any questions or comments that you guys might have. I was thinking about the characters that are, that are sort of like the, the 
Shakespeare theaters, but in uh, Shakespeare's comedies. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about that because the kid played uh, Grumio last year. Yeah. I was thinking that they, they sort of uh, have that in common with the secondary theaters that um, they, they tend to be the ones speaking the truth mm. to the audience, mm. right? Or, or to whoever's listening to power, right? Um, I'm trying to remember, I remember Grumio a little bit. Is Grumio, does Grumio win in the end? Doesn't he get married? Well, so we combined, we combined okay. it because it was for the tour. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Grumio was uh, Petruchio's right-hand man. Yeah. Uh, so he, uh, he sort of, uh, she sort of pointed out the, the shrews in the uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, the audience. Shane, which is a fool character. Yeah. Like oh, okay. Saying yeah. wise things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as a, but as a fool. As a right. fool, exactly. Okay, yeah. Saying the truth. Right. I, I, I played Festy in Twelfth uh, Night, and that was... Same, same. And isn't Festy sometimes just called the fool? Yes. Am I thinking of somebody else? Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. sure. Yeah, Even mean, though... And the, the, the fool in Lear, the as you like it, and the fool in Twelfth Night are all the characters that speak to power. Yeah. What about Polonius? He's like very silly and kind of yeah. daffy, but I'm trying to remember, does he also have some wisdom, or is he, is he just kind of... Like, so I think that he does have some wisdom, and that's that famous speech... Yeah, I wish I could remember. Maybe one of you knows it. Um, uh, he's giving it to his son who is leaving. Yeah, uh, yeah. Laertes. Yep. 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 Um, yep. And you could read it because by this point we know that he's kind of a fool. Um, Polonies, but if you just read it independent of him, it's like all, oh, it's great advice. Um, Andrew Kern, who you know from the Searcy conference, who hosts the plays The Thing, see that little product plug I just did? Um, he, when he took his daughter to college, he kind of pulled her aside when they got on campus and he like had memorized that and he gave it to her. And he was just like, you know, here's like a little bit of parting wisdom. So, I think he's really smart. I think that Polonius, I actually got this from Andrew, Polonius was a really, really wise man or a really studied man. I don't know that he was ever a wise man. He was a very studied man because you can hear him. He clearly has learning. But when he gets put under the rule of the king who killed Hamlet's father, He's living in this kind of poisonous system, and he just becomes a bootlicker. He just is forced to become a toady. And so any wisdom that he had just like goes out the door. I mean, in some ways, you could say if Paulina or if Kent just said, if they didn't speak the truth and just kind of went along with the new crazy system that Lear and Leontes installed, they might even maybe end up like somebody like Polonius, maybe, speculation. Any other comments or thoughts? I really appreciate the time. I'm going to say one more thing. Um, I spent a lot of time in Oregon, and the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is in Ashland, Oregon, 
it started, I think, in the 50s with a, basically a bunch of actors moving to this little town, a town that's much smaller than Huntington. And today, it's probably like a top 10 Shakespeare festival in the world. So, I know this is your third year, and you guys are just getting started, but um, yeah, you can go, you can go places. The, the town, Ashland, I've been there several times because their Shakespeare festival is so great. And Ashland reminds me, just topography and flora and fauna, a lot of Huntington, like these beautiful rolling hills. It's the Cascades in Oregon. These are the, what are the mountains? Are they the um, Appalachian Mountains? Anyway, it's just interesting to me. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Me that both started really small and the just rolling landscapes really similar. So who knows? Sky's the limit. Thanks everybody very much. Appreciate it.